You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Operation Trace. Just a quick little disclaimer before this episode begins. I've been under the weather for the last number of weeks and haven't been able to research the topics I had scheduled to release this week. But rather than leave you all without an episode, you're getting this instead, which is an episode I wrote for supporters on Patreon this time last year. I've reworked some of the material to add more detail, but on the whole, you'll find it's a different kind of episode than what I normally release. The focus is going to be on a geographical area in the east of Ireland, sometimes referred to as Ireland's Vanishing Triangle, but it's more like a general Leinster area. For decades, women have gone missing and their bodies have been found dumped in the Dublin and Wicklow Mountains. Some have disappeared from the area around the mountains and have never been found. Many of the cases remain unsolved, and people have naturally wondered, why? On the 11th of February 2000, after a long day working in her Carlo business, a woman finally pulled the shutters down and went about locking up her storefront. It was quarter past eight in the evening. She had met her last client, a female civil servant, at half seven, and she was now done for the day. She had the day's takings on her, and was to go by the bank to drop off the £700 or so. She walked the short distance to the nearby car park as usual, but then, suddenly, a man came up behind her. He had spotted her earlier in the village and had begun stalking her, looking for an opportunity to strike. Somehow, he knew that she'd be finishing work that evening and leaving alone. Her client recalled seeing a man hanging around the otherwise deserted car park, and later described him as shifty and fidgety. He was standing next to a small, dark-coloured car. She had quickly walked to her own car, aware that the man was following her with his eyes, and so she got herself into the car and out of the dark parking lot as quickly as she could. The man was still there when the 28-year-old walked across the car park on her own, a few minutes after her client had left. She saw the man standing by a blue car and quickened her step. But suddenly, the man had crossed the car park. She had pressed the fob on her set of keys to unlock the car doors, and with that he was upon her before she knew it. She was shocked that he'd moved so fast. The man demanded the money off her, but Before she had time to react, he punched her in the face, breaking her nose. Then he opened the car door and forced her into the passenger seat of her own car. He demanded the keys from her, but she dropped them in the initial attack. He shoved her over to the passenger seat and held her there while he fished the keys from the footwell of the car. Then he drove to a more secluded spot near a loading bay in the car park while he was holding her down. 
He had pushed her head down into the center console of the car and held it there with his elbow. She was unable to move and completely terrified. He stopped just a short distance away from where his car was waiting for them, out of sight of anyone who might be passing by. There he tied her hands together with her own bra and gagged her with a headband in the Carlo County colours that had hung on her rearview mirror. He took her boots off and tossed them away, leaving fingerprints on them. He forced the woman into the boot of his car and then drove to an area off the beaten track, north, outside of Carlo Town, a secluded place called Beaconston. It was about nine miles from Carlo Town, and while he drove, he blared music to cover any noises the bound woman in his boot might make. When he got her to Beaconston, he took the woman from the boot of his car, untied her and assaulted and raped her. He was only two and a half miles from his own home as the crow flies. Then he tied her back up again, put her back in the boot, and drove to Kilranala in Wicklow, another fourteen miles away. There he took her from the boot again and put her into the passenger seat, where he assaulted her again. He became more aggressive and was going on about how he was never going to see his family again. He told her that his name was William, that he was married and had two sons. She knew he shouldn't be telling her these things. The woman began to fear for her life. After he brutally raped her over and over, the man tied her back up and talked to her more about his life. Then he put her back into the boot. But this time, the headband was around her wrists, and while he had been talking to her, she had managed to loosen them slightly. So once she was back in the boot, she managed to grab hold of an aerosol can. When he returned, she tried to spray it into the man's face, but it didn't work. Enraged, the man pushed her further back into the boot of the car. She was struggling, though, knowing that her chances of getting free from her attacker were becoming slim now, and that if she ended up locked in the boot again, she'd likely never make it home. But the man decided that he'd had enough of her fighting back, and covered her head with a plastic bag. Sheer terror set in now for the woman, and she kicked out at her captor, trying desperately to get out of the boot and away from him. But with the bag over her head, she began to get light-headed and fall into a semi-conscious state as her oxygen supply quickly depleted. As this struggle at the back of the car went on, a bright light shone over the area where the blue Fiat was parked. In a panic, the woman's captor fled as two men out lamping for foxes saw the man and the horrific scene in front of them and ran to help the woman. Unable to push the woman back into the boot, the man allowed her to drop onto the ground as he ran to the front of the vehicle and jumped in, fleeing. The woman also started to run off, terrified that her ordeal wasn't over yet. She ran into a ditch and got stuck on some barbed wire there. As the two men approached, she screamed at them, quote, Are you with him? But the hunters convinced her that she was safe now, that they weren't with her attacker, and that they were going to help her. They helped her out of the ditch, wrapped her in a coat, and took her to Balton Glass Garda Station, where the traumatised woman told her story, and the men told the guardee that they had seen the woman's attacker. Not only that, but they had recognised him. The two men were locals, Kenneth Jones and Trevor Moody, 
and Moody particularly had reason to remember the face of Larry Murphy. A few years before, one of his female friends had pointed Murphy out to him, saying that he had groped her in a pub. They had been at the Glen Lounge in Dunard, and in fact Murphy had lunged at the woman, grabbing at her, and all hell broke loose in the pub. But it was decided that the incident wasn't serious enough to inform the guardie about. People in the area were now more wary of him than they had been, but Murphy stayed out of any official trouble. There had also been one further earlier incident which indicated that Larry Murphy had the potential to pose a danger to women he came into contact with. That happened around the same time. Murphy was dropping a friend of his wife's back to her home from theirs before heading out to the pub. He'd been out earlier in the day, and when he'd returned home, he had invited his wife to come out with him, but she'd said no, and the friend had asked for a lift. The two got into the car, and everything was as normal, until Murphy drove past the turn to her house. She told him he was going the wrong way, but he didn't respond, and just kept driving, eventually turning off the main road and into a secluded area. When he stopped the car, he turned to her, and put his arm around her shoulder, and his hands on her bare leg. It was summer, she was wearing shorts. She screamed and tried to push him off, and he became enraged and put his hands around her neck. She managed to get out of the car and run off, but Murphy chased after her, apologising. She later said that during the attacks his expression had gone blank, like there was nothing behind his eyes anymore. But when he came after her, it was like he had come back to himself. They got into the car and drove back to hers. She ran inside and locked herself in the bathroom as Murphy begged her not to say anything and saying that he was sorry. But then Murphy's wife arrived. She'd decided to go for that drink after all and now she knew something was terribly wrong, that something awful had happened. The friend couldn't bring herself to say what Larry had done to her and so Larry told his wife what had happened. No one went to the police. So Larry Murphy had a past, but not one that had ever landed him in the line of sight of the Gardee. For all intents and purposes, he was a respected family man. He was 36, from the village of Boltonglass, and worked in carpentry and building. He was a father of two little boys, who worked hard and was well respected. All the same, the morning after the attack in Kilranala, the Gardee called at the house of Larry Murphy. He had gotten a bottle of whiskey after he fled the scene in the woods at Kilranala. He'd gone home and stripped off his clothes before falling asleep, and it seemed he'd been expecting the guardie when they arrived. Murphy let them into the house and admitted what he had done. He said he had no idea why he'd attacked the woman. Before he was brought back to the police station, he had to tell his wife that he had raped a woman the night before. He was brought to the station in the clothes he'd been wearing during the attack. Larry Murphy appeared in court in May of 2001 on charges of kidnapping, rape, attempted murder and assault and robbery. He pled guilty to all charges, and so the hearing was a relatively short one, with the guardie simply presenting their evidence and a statement from the victim being read to the court. Patrick Gageby, senior counsel, acted for Murphy 
and presented to the court the fact that Murphy, a married father of two and self-employed carpenter, had never come to the attention of the guardie until this point. He also submitted that his client had expressed remorse, and he had not attempted to conceal his actions or any evidence. Gageby asked for whatever leniency the court could offer to his client. Mr. Justice Carney imposed four and three-year sentences for the assault and robbery charges, and fifteen years for the charges of rape and attempted murder. All sentences were to run concurrently, and the final year of each sentence was suspended due to Murphy's guilty plea. It meant that he had spared the courts the expense of a trial, and spared the victim from having to give evidence. The judge said, quote, I find very little point in saying that this was one of the worst cases to come before the court, because my experience is that when I do, a probably worse case comes before me the following week. End quote. A life sentence would have been open for him, but Justice Carney felt that life sentences were too often overturned on appeal in these cases. While imprisoned, Murphy refused to engage in any of the rehabilitation services and never demonstrated any remorse for his actions. It emerged that while he was being questioned by the guardie, he said things like, quote, Well, she's alive, isn't she? And, quote, She was lucky. So, the question is, did this guy just snap? He went from well-respected family man to kidnapping a woman and raping her in the back of a car. Not only that, with his guilty plea, it seemed that he just rolled over, and very quickly. By his attitude during questioning, it seems unlikely that it was due to remorse. Larry Murphy is, of course, suspected in other cases. And there are a number of other cases of mysteriously disappearing women to choose from throughout the 90s. They're all unsolved cases, and all in the general Leinster area. The first was Annie McCarrick. She was a 26-year-old woman, originally from Long Island. In the early 90s, she moved to Ireland and began living in Sandymount in Dublin where she shared an apartment with two flatmates. On the 26th of March, 1993, she disappeared. That day, she had run some errands, going to the shops and to the bank. She then went for a walk. There's a possible sighting of her in the afternoon on the number 44 bus out to the picturesque village of Enniskerry. She was also seen in the post office in Enniskerry. This is the last confirmed sighting of her. There's another unconfirmed sighting of Annie with an unidentified man in Johnny Fox's pub in the Wicklow Mountains later that day. But then, nothing. Annie McCarrick was reported missing the day after, when friends who were to have dinner with her at her apartment called around and there was no sign of her. She had also failed to collect her wages the day before. Her flatmates rang her father in New York, who immediately knew that something was wrong. Her mother had planned on flying to Ireland to visit in a few days, but both her parents brought the trip forward and left for Dublin as soon as possible. Searches were mounted, but there was never any sign of the young woman. 
A book released in 2014 called Missing Presumed claimed to know the fate of Annie McCarrick, a theory centering around the unconfirmed sighting of her at Johnny Fox's that day in March. The book said that she had met a man at the pub, a member of the IRA. He had had a few drinks with her and had apparently bragged about his involvement in the paramilitary group. But this book alleged he had said too much and when he offered Annie a lift home, he killed her and left her in the mountains. An IRA cover-up followed and the man in question left for the USA shortly after. But he's never been questioned in relation to the disappearance of Annie McCarrick and the case has since gone cold. Later that year, in July of 1993, Eva Brennan of Rathgar disappeared. It was reported that in the run-up to her disappearance, she was depressed. She was close to her family and called to the family home nearly every day, but after having lunch with them all on the 25th of that month, she didn't call around again. The jacket she had worn to lunch was in her apartment, so she had gone home after, but again, there was no sign of her and the case went cold. Imelda Keenan was 22 in January of 1994. She was from Mount Mellick, County Leash, but was living in Waterford City while attending the technical college there. She shared an apartment with her boyfriend, Mark Wall. She left to go to the post office on the 3rd of that month, and was seen crossing a road nearby by a local woman who knew her well. Imelda was never seen again and no one ever came forward with any further information. Josephine, or Jojo Dollard, was 21 and living in Harold's Cross, County Dublin, in November of 1995. She was originally from Callan, County Kilkenny, though. She had been in beauty college, but had recently dropped out because she found juggling her work and college was too difficult. She was planning on moving home that day but had missed her bus to Callan, and so hopped a bus to Nace, County Kildare, instead. She decided to hit a lift from Nace down to Kilkenny. She made a phone call to her friend from a phone box in the village of Moon on the night of the 9th of November at 11.37. Her friend lived in Carlo, and she was hoping to be able to stay with her that night. As they were talking, she accepted a lift from another car. She was also seen that night talking to someone in a dark Toyota Carina. There was another possible sighting of her in Castle Dermot a short time later, and then an hour after that, someone reported seeing a young girl being put into the back of a car by two men in Kilmacow, well south of the last sighting of her, and much further south than her destination in Kilkenny. She was never seen again. Jojo's sister has since come forward, claiming that she was sent a letter by the ex of a man that had said he was responsible for Jojo's death. But after handing the letter over to the guardie, she said, nothing was done. In 2015, a tip came in in relation to Jojo's case through Trace Missing Persons, an Irish charity set up in 2001 to help locate the missing and murdered. The tip was from a woman in Australia who was originally from the Midlands. She'd gotten a strange feeling from the guy who had picked her up, she said, that he might know what had happened to the missing women. He was driving a van or a truck of some sort and spoke with a Midlands accent. 
The next woman to go missing was Fiona Pender, on August the 22nd, 1996. She was 25 years old at the time and seven months pregnant. She worked as a model and a hairdresser and had been out that day shopping with her mam for baby things. She was dropped off by her mother at about seven that evening to her flat that she had with her boyfriend, John Thompson, in Tullamore, County Offaly. John said that he saw her the next morning before he left for work, but he also said that he had stayed at his family's farm the night before and had no clue where Fiona had gone to. On the 23rd, Fiona's mam got no answer at the door when she knocked, and when there was still no sign of Fiona the day after that, Josephine went to the Gardee. A witness came forward from the night of the 22nd who said he was driving south from Tullamore towards Schlieve Bloom and was nearly forced off the road by a 4 by 4 Gardee did not issue an appeal for information about the disappearance of Fiona until five days after her mother had reported her missing. After the appeal was broadcast, a local man came forward saying that he had seen two men just outside the house that Fiona lived in, moving something that looked like a rolled-up carpet into the back of a 4 by 4 The countryside was scoured and the Royal Canal was drained in an attempt to find Fiona's body, but nothing was ever found. Two men and three women were arrested in April 1997, but again, nothing came of it. The searches effectively stopped until 2008, when a small, handmade, newish-looking wooden cross with Fiona's name and the date she went missing was found in the Schlieve Blue Mountains. The whole area was searched because of this, and a larger forensic search was carried out over two acres with a British specialist. Still, nothing was found. In 2014, John Thompson, who had been Fiona's boyfriend at the time of her disappearance, was arrested in Canada, where he had moved with his new wife. It was alleged that there he had drugged her and then put makeup and wigs on her and sexually assaulted her while she was unconscious. His wife had found the makeup, fake nails, and wig in a bag hidden in their house under a mattress, and there were also tapes of the assaults. Thompson was eventually acquitted and cleared of the charges, but it was indicated that Thompson had sexual fantasies consistent with necrophilia, and during his trial his wife gave testimony that he had threatened her with violence, saying that he'd gotten violent with women before. She said he'd even told her that she would end up like his ex. His wife told the court in Canada that Thompson had even once brought her to an isolated spot in Ireland and told her that that was where Fiona was. Canada, of course, informed the Gardie about it all, and after asking Thompson's wife to try and identify a location, a further search for Fiona's remains took place in 2014. Still nothing was found, but both Gardie and Fiona's family believed that she was killed by someone who knew her, and that the perpetrator may have been assisted by at least one other person. The next woman to go missing was 17-year-old Kira Breen. On the 13th of February, 1997, Kira climbed out of her bedroom window in Dundalk, County Louth. At 2am, her mam woke up to go to the bathroom and noticed that her daughter was missing, 
and that her window was left on the latch so that she could get back in in the morning. But Kira never returned. As the years went on, more of her friends were willing to talk to the guardie about what might have happened that night. They were told that Kira had made a date for the night that she had gone missing. In 1999, a man was arrested and questioned in relation to her disappearance. It's thought that he may have been a guy who hung around with Kira and her friends at the local chippers. He was a bit older and had once called at Kira's house, but her mother had chased him off. The same man was arrested again in April of 2015. Later that year, a bog area in County Louth was searched, but no remains were found. The case remains unsolved. On February 8, 1998, Fiona Sinnott disappeared from her home in Broadway, County Wexford. She had last been seen leaving the local pub, Butler's. She had been walked home by her ex-boyfriend, Sean Carroll, with whom she had an 11-month-old little girl called Emma, who was staying with his parents that night. Fiona had said that she wasn't feeling well and had gone straight to bed. Sean had slept on the couch. The next morning, she was still feeling unwell and told him that she was going to the doctor's that day. She told him that she'd no money and he gave her three quid before he left, getting a lift from his mam who was waiting for him outside the house. Fiona never made it to any local doctors, nor was she seen by anyone hitching a lift. She was never seen again. Over the next ten days, no one from her family had heard anything from her, and she was finally reported missing on the 18th of that month. When the Gardie searched the house, there was a complete lack of any evidence of a young girl and her daughter living there. All of her personal belongings had been removed. It was later found in black bags in a field by a farmer, who had unfortunately burned some of it as dumped rubbish before realising that it might be connected to the missing girl's case. Gardie suspected that someone was trying to make it look like Fiona had just up and left, but after it was finally reported in the media that she had gone missing, a neighbour came forward saying that they had heard a woman screaming the night Fiona and Sean had left the pub early. There was also another report of a driver seeing a couple arguing in the area as well. Again, there are strong suspicions that people in the local area know what happened to Fiona and will not come forward to identify the people involved in her killing and disappearance. In 2001, a man suspected of having helped in hiding Fiona's body died of a drug overdose. It's said locally that this was intentional, as he could no longer live with the guilt of his involvement. In September of 2005, the Gardaí announced that the case was being treated as a murder inquiry. There were six arrests made that day. Three men and three women were questioned in relation to the disappearance and death of Fiona Sinnott. All were released without charge. By 2015, Fiona's family had become frustrated with the lack of progress in the murder inquiry, and particularly due to the lack of action on a tip received through Facebook. They decided to search the area they had been told of themselves, but again, nothing was found. In July of 1998, Deirdre Jacob of Newbridge, County Kildare, went missing. She was home for the summer from London, where she was studying teaching at St. Mary's University, Twickenham. She had gone out and made the 20-minute walk to the local village. 
There she went to the bank and withdrew money to pay for her next semester's tuition, and then went to the post office to send the money. She was seen walking through the town by a number of people, and was even spotted on her return journey, near to the gates of her house. But she never made it back into the house, and was never seen again. In the cases of Fiona Pender, Fiona Sinnott, and Kira Breen, it would seem most likely that they were killed by someone that they knew, and this seems to be the assumption of both their families and the Gardaí. Larry Murphy is often mentioned as a suspect in relation to Annie McCarrick, Jojo Dollard, and Deirdre Jacob, though their families are often quick to dismiss this suggestion, as they feel that strongly associating him with any of these missing presumed murder cases may detract from efforts being made to actually solve the cases. It would be easy to make Larry Murphy into the bogeyman responsible for all the missing and murdered women in the Wicklow Mountains. That said, a cellmate of Larry Murphy's in Arbor Hill has come forward saying that Murphy confessed to him while they were both inside. According to reports, Murphy told him that he'd stopped a young woman who was walking along a road near Newbridge and asked her for directions. According to this prisoner, Murphy said that when the girl stopped to help him, he grabbed her by the hair and pulled her into the car. He'd driven off and killed her. It's a story that could make sense of what happened to Deirdre Jacob, but there's basically no way to know. It seems unlikely that the attack Murphy was convicted of in 2001 was his first, and it does seem that the unsolved disappearances stopped while he was in prison. But of course, there are more women who have gone missing in the Leinster and Midlands area over the years. If we look back to the 80s, there are a number of women who went missing and their bodies turned up disposed in the Wicklow Mountains. This had, in fact, been happening for quite some time. Patricia Furlong went missing in July of 1982 and was last seen in Johnny Fox's, just like Annie McCarrick. She had been attending an annual festival held in and around the pub. She was found dead the next day in a nearby field, having been raped and strangled. Her belongings were piled neatly around her in the field. There was a conviction in this case, a DJ who had been in attendance that night, though this conviction was later overturned due to alleged physical abuse by Gardee while he was in custody in order to elicit a confession. In 1987, Antoinette Smith had attended the David Bowie concert at Slane on July 11th. She and her friends headed back into the city centre and went to La Mirage nightclub in Parnell Street. She was then picked up by a taxi driver at about half three in the company of two men and brought out to Rathfarnham. The taxi driver said that he had heard them discussing a house party. Antoinette's body was found nine months later, near Enniscary. She had been raped and strangled. Patricia Doherty from Talla was 29 when she went missing on the 23rd of December 1991, after going out to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. When she didn't return home, her husband was worried, but he had assumed that she had gone to work the next day. She worked in the prison services. It wasn't until he arrived at her mother's house in Rathfarnham on Christmas Day that he reported her missing, as she still hadn't turned up. Six months later, her body was found in Bogland, near Glenadoo Mountain at Enniscary, 
near to where Antoinette Smith had been found. She too had been raped and strangled. Earlier this year, we heard the story of Una Linsky, who in 1971 was abducted from a laneway near to her home in County Meath, and whose body was found two months later in a ditch in the Dublin mountains. Finally, we know that Elaine O'Hara was also murdered and left in the Wicklow Mountains by her killer Graham Dwyer. Of course, she was never included in these lists because, first, she was presumed to have committed suicide, and then it was quickly apparent that she was murdered by someone she knew, with whom she had a BDSM relationship. And, unfortunately, this phenomenon of women going missing or being found murdered in the Dublin Wicklow Mountains is not something that we can relegate to the past. On the evening of the 19th of May last year, 2018, Justine Valdez got on the number 185 bus from Bray heading towards Enniskerry. She was 24 and had moved to Ireland three years previously from the Philippines to join her parents here. She was studying finance and accounting and worked part-time to cover her costs. Somewhere along the route, the bus began to be followed by a black Nissan Qashqai, driven by Mark Hennessy. He had spent the afternoon in a pub, but hadn't really been drinking. He was a 40-year-old married father of two, but it was reported that his relationship was under strain and that he had begun drinking heavily and doing cocaine. When Justine got off the bus, she started to walk towards her home and Mark Hennessy grabbed her and shoved her into the boot of his car. He was seen by two witnesses who called the guardie. The search for Justine began quickly that evening and Garda helicopters were called in to see if they could spot the car while further investigations identified Mark Hennessy as their prime suspect. But by that evening, Justine was already dead, and her body had been dumped in a field. The search was on for Mark Hennessy and his black Kashkai. He wasn't found until the next evening, Sunday, at about 8pm. His car was parked in a business park in South County Dublin, and he was surrounded by Gardi, the civil defence, and he had a helicopter hovering overhead. He refused to get out of the car and was armed with a Stanley knife and high on cocaine. He was cutting himself with the blade. Gardy asked him to drop the blade, but he continued slashing at himself and then lunged toward a detective. Mark Hennessy was shot once in the shoulder, which ricocheted off his collarbone and hit an artery. He died in seconds. The guardie at the time had no idea where Justine was, or whether she was in the car or not. Hennessy had left a note in the car simply saying, sorry, and Puck's castle. He had called his wife moments before the standoff with the guardie, telling her that he had done something awful and that he wouldn't be coming home. That was all. Gardee located Justine's body the next day in thick gorse bushes in the abandoned golf course Puck's Castle in Rathmichael in the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains. Justine's abduction and murder, of course, brought up memories of all the missing women from the area. Though there had been no definitive link between Hennessy and Justine, it does seem unlikely that he just coincidentally followed her bus and grabbed her that day. 
It was bright out. There were witnesses. It must have had to be her that he wanted. Nor does it seem likely that this was his first attack. So there is now an investigation as to whether Hennessy had any connection at all to any of the other women who have disappeared in the last 20 years. But unlike Larry Murphy, if Mark Hennessy is the culprit, there will be no resolution to those cases. He's no longer alive to tell the guardee if he harboured further secrets. If that's the case, those women will not be found and brought home. As for the notorious Larry Murphy, he was released from prison in 2011 after serving 10 of his 15 years. He was convicted before the 2001 Sex Offender Act was introduced, so he is therefore not included on the sex offenders registry that was brought in with that piece of legislation and is also not subject to the limitations imposed under that act. After his release, he initially moved back to the Bolton Glass area where he had attacked his victim, but he quickly left that area due to public outcry. He resurfaced in Amsterdam, where he had moved and lived there with a friend he had made in Arbor Hill Prison, a double rapist himself. The authorities in the Netherlands had no idea that Murphy was in the country, and there was of course a public outcry after his presence was reported in both the Irish and Dutch media. While Murphy was serving his time, Garda Commissioner Pat Byrne set up Operation Trace to look into the disappearances and murders that occurred in the Leinster area in the 90s, particularly the cases of Annie McCarrick, Jojo Dallard, Fiona Pender, Kira Breen and Fiona Sinnott. It employed all the latest methods to collect and collate data, including the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System developed in Canada and new studies on victimology but no definitive links between the crimes could be made. The operation also attempted to make connections between the victims in these cases and the list of possible suspects as well. In 2012, under Operation Trace, a search was conducted in the Wicklow Mountains, focusing on an abandoned hunting lodge and the areas around it. The Gardaí at the time said that they hoped to find evidence linking Larry Murphy to the hut. Presumably they thought that he had committed other crimes, and that this was possibly a crime scene or a link to that. But nothing conclusive was ever found. Larry Murphy has been linked to other missing cases. There was talk that Larry Murphy was known to stop by Johnny Fox's for a drink on occasion. The place that Jojo Dollard was last seen was very close indeed to where Larry Murphy lived at the time. There's a theory that he picked her up that night while she was trying to hitch her lift home and attacked and killed her. Gardie went so far as to take statements from the people who lived in the houses near the last sighting of her to see if they could put any of the quote-unquote known suspects in the area that night. Perhaps most convincingly, Deirdre Jacob had been back in Ireland staying with her grandmother the day she disappeared. Her grandmother is reported to have had contact with Larry Murphy in his capacity as a carpenter. He'd done some work for her, although it said he wasn't working that particular day. It's reported that Larry Murphy has moved to London and lives there under aliases, but that he does occasionally travel back to Dublin and closer to his home. While he is not subject to the Sex Offenders Act, both Gardy and the London Met are reportedly keeping a close eye on Murphy's movements. This has been even more so in recent months with reported developments in the case relating to Deirdre Jacob. 
Her case was upgraded from one relating to a missing person to murder in August of 2018, after renewed appeals in January of that year, on the 20th anniversary of her disappearance, brought in further leads from the public. The appeal was accompanied by a primetime special about Deirdre's disappearance and included never-before-seen CCTV footage of the young woman as she walked through Newbridge Town the day she went missing. By October, sources were reported in the media saying that there was significant new information about Deirdre's disappearance and that Larry Murphy was now a person of interest in the case, though Gardee were still pursuing several lines of inquiry. The Mirror reported that officers had travelled to the UK to question Murphy in relation to new information putting him in the Newbridge area the day Deirdre disappeared. Most recently, the Irish Sun has reported that sources say not only is the investigation active, but a file is being prepared to send to the DPP relating to an unnamed person. Once it's sent, it will then be decided if any charges will be laid in relation to the case. It may be that one of the many unsolved cases associated with the so-called vanishing triangle may yet be solved. Over the years, there has been speculation about various serial killers, but the time span, locations, victimology and so on don't indicate one person committing these crimes over the span of 30 years. So that begs the question, what in the world is going on in the Wicklow Mountains? One reason might be that if you step back from the details of each of these crimes and really look at the area itself, the geography of this area, might come close to an explanation. The mountains are forested and boggy areas. Add to that how isolated these areas are, and it's got another aspect that might be attractive for people looking to dispose of a body. Johnny Fox's pub is literally in the middle of nowhere. And here's the thing. You put that area right next to the largest population centre on the island, and unfortunately, it's just an obvious place for bodies to turn up. It's less than an hour's drive from the city centre up to the mountains and the tiny little winding back roads. Though some of the disappearances and murders of women from the last 30 years are possibly connected, a more likely explanation for these cases is unfortunately mundane. Women were killed by people in their lives that they knew, that they possibly had relationships with, and the perpetrators just took advantage of the landscape around them. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or, honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Emma Owen, Violet Donahoe, Holly Fan, Stephen from Evil Minds Podcast, Wendy Krill, Jesse Jane, Brian Daly, and Colm Folan. I am loving these long lists, guys. Thanks so much for your support, everyone. I feel so honored that people listen to the show and like it enough to help support its production. Patrons get exclusive Mens Rea bonus episodes, a monthly court roundup called In Brief, and extra stories in the form of guilt trips. There's also merch and my undying love, so check it out. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod, 
Additional music by Winita Maxell. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. There's an excellent book about some of the cases mentioned in today's show called Where No One Can Hear You Scream by Sarah McInerney, which I've linked there too. It's a good read if you'd like to find out more. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Just so you know, this show is about scary stuff. So don't say I didn't warn you guys. And remember, don't be scared. Murderous Miners brings true tales of children who have killed. Premeditated murders. Accidental killings and deaths. From toddlers to 18-year-old killers, no one is too young to take a life. Join me, War Baby, as I try to tell these stories of the young who've killed, the lives they took, and even the ones who've been left behind. Why do children kill? What do we do with young killers? And do they kill again? Until next time, don't be scared. <laughs>